Good morning. You can make your way in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Uh, it was uh, unexpected uh, to be here this morning and this evening, but providentially it works out quite well as we're going through the parables uh, because Matthew chapter 25 has three parables back to back that really uh, fit quite well together, that carry the theme. So um, we're going to be doing a part one and a part two um, as we look at these parables in Matthew chapter 25. Um, I've, I don't usually put titles on my sermons, but I have titled this one, How to Live in the Last Days, part one and then this evening, part two. So let's uh, look at our text this morning, Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13 is what we're going to deal with this morning. Let's read that passage, Matthew chapter 25, starting in the first verse. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. For our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help this morning. Lord God, we, we do come before you, come before your word, Lord, which contains both precious encouraging promises, and trembling warnings. And so I pray, Lord, you would give us grace to hear both of these things from your word. Lord, help us. Our hearts are naturally dull and sleepy. Awaken us, Lord. Prepare us, O God, that we might be ready and watching, anticipating your coming living, prepared lives for you. Help us, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the, as our, it's kind of our pattern here and we come to a parable, we want to look at the context of the parable. And for these three parables in Matthew 25, that is very, very important. So we have to go back to Matthew chapter 24. So as you 
hopefully remember, we in um, chapter 22, 20, yeah, 22, when we were talking about the, the wedding feast, we've said that Jesus has entered into his final week, right? He has entered into Jerusalem. He will soon be betrayed by chief priests and the Pharisees. Um, and he has warned them through the last few parables. He has warned them of their hypocrisy, that they're about to lose the kingdom. In chapter 23, he spends an entire chapter rebuking these chief priests and scribes and Pharisees, dressing them down to show them their hypocrisy. And then in chapter 24, Jesus and his disciples are there. They're in Jerusalem, right? They're beginning to celebrate the Passover festivities. And perhaps they're, um, they were leaving Jerusalem, it says in verse 1, chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Verse 2, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus has already alluded to this destruction of the temple in the past couple parables that he told and that we looked at. He warned um, the chief priests, the leaders of the Jews, that just like the unfaithful tenants, the wicked tenants, the vineyard would be taken away from them and God would bring them to a wretched end. And then in chapter 22 with the parable of the wedding feast, he's warned them that they're missing, they're going to miss, I'm sorry, those who resisted the invitation to the wedding, the king in anger sent his troops to destroy those murderers and burn their city. He's alluded to this destruction several times already, and now he tells his disciples plainly, all of these stones will be thrown down. Can you imagine that would be like us taking a, you know, a, a, a tourist trip to Washington, D.C., you know, walking through the mall, and we see the White House, we see the monuments, we see the Pentagon, and our tour guide turns around and says, do you see all these things? All these stones will be thrown down. What? <laughs> and so he... That's basically what he has said to the disciples. And so his, disi- and his disciples follow him to the Mount of Olives and they turn around and they say, okay, wait, we've got to follow up with this. We've got to follow up with this statement. So we, on verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? Right, What you just said. When will these stones be thrown down? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so then Jesus begins to explain these things, warning them to watch out for false prophets, telling them what will happen in the last days, telling them the abomination that will cause desolation that comes, and um, explaining all these things. And then he's going to end that teaching by telling three parables that are going to reinforce what they need to take away from this teaching. So we see in the the disciples' question, 
that they thought that these events were pretty much all one and the same event, or that they would come in very close succession, right? The destruction of the temple, the end of the age, the return of Christ, the setting up of His kingdom. So Matthew 24 contains some of the hardest interpretive knots to untie. As Jesus answers, sometimes His answer seems to imply a short time, like chapter 24, verse 34. Um, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And then at other times, it seems to imply a long time, if we go to chapter 24, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Okay, so we need world evangelization must take place first, then the end will come. And then at, as he ends chapter 24, he reiterates that the time of his coming is an unknown time. Chapter 24 Verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So, is it short? Is it long? Is it unknown? Yes, it's all those things. And the point of this sermon is not to untie those interpretive knots. I don't think I have them all untied. But let it be sufficient to say this, that Jesus is answering three questions in this chapter, in chapter 24, which are related but yet distinct events. Some of Jesus' answer pertains to the destruction of the temple, which the apostles will witness in their lifetime, and which surely was a sign of the end of the age. Other parts of Jesus' answer describe the general characteristics that will mark the last days, which is the time between Jesus' first coming and His second coming. We live in the last days. And so did the apostles. It was this this span of time between Jesus' first and second coming. So Jesus then ends His teaching in chapter 24 by making it clear that the exact time of His return is unknown to all but God the Father. And by implication, that time cannot be known by man. So every book that's been written predicting the coming of Jesus Christ, you can just throw that in the fire. You know, putting a date to it, putting a time to it. It cannot be known. He makes that very clear. Thus, we are to live in a state of continual readiness, continual watchfulness, living faithfully in anticipation for the return of Christ. Jesus then proceeds to reinforce these points by telling three parables. And these parables are meant to stir us up to watchfulness and faithfulness as we live in these last days looking forward to the return of Christ, our final judgment and eternal reward. So Jesus ends the parable or ends his teaching with these three parables of illustration, right? To help us see so because most of the time when we come to the end times themes, right? 
Most of the time we're trying to figure out, okay, what's, how it's all going to play out, right? What, what, play is, what, what role is America going to play in the last days? What role is Russia going to play? What role is China going to play? You know, we're all trying to put the puzzle pieces together, but Jesus doesn't end by emphasizing how to put all the puzzle pieces together. He ends by emphasizing how we should live, how we should live as Christians in these last days. So the first of these parables is the parable of the ten virgins. So let's back up just to, again, to set the context. Let's go back to chapter 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Okay? Now he's going to explain what he means by that. For as in those days, in the days of Noah, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, daily life was carrying on in the days of Noah like nothing was going to happen, like nothing was ever going to change until that day, Noah, the door was shut and the rain came down. So at the same way, in the coming of Christ, people we're going to be carrying on life as usual. And it will catch people unaware. Verse 40, Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. Uh, we're going to see a repeated theme here. Wake, watch, wakefulness. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Right? Again, wakefulness, stayed awake. Right? If you know what time the thief is coming, if you've ever had anything of significance stolen from you, if you're like, man, if I would have known, I would have been standing there, shotgun in hand, saying, uh, what are you doing with that? Have any of you had a, a car stolen or your house broken into? You know that feeling. Man, if I would have been there at that time. All right, stay awake. Be prepared. Therefore, he said, verse 44, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So there's a, because of the time is unknown, there's a call for, to be, for readiness, for wakefulness, for preparation. And th that's the point we're going to see repeated here in the parable of the ten virgins. So let's go to the, back to the parable. So chapter 25, verse 1. So then... Jesus is saying, at that time, the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of Christ, the kingdom of heaven will be like this, like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So, Jesus is drawing from a wedding tradition that was common in his time. At some point, usually late in the wedding festivities, 
the groom would come to escort his new bride from her family's house, which is usually where the wedding would take place, and escort her to his own home, which would become her home, right? And since this usually would take place later in the wedding celebrations, usually at night, the end of the festivities, the virgins, or these virgins would be the, basically we would call them the bridesmaids, right? The women who attended uh, the bride. These bridesmaids would go out to meet the groom with lamps or torches, right? To light the way. They were going to light the way for the groom as he marched up to the family's house. They're going to light the way for their procession from the bride's family's house to the groom's house, right? As a parade of sorts. So they needed lamps. They needed torches. So in Jesus' parable, we have ten of these bridesmaids who have been given, given the privilege of escorting the groom to receive his bride and then take her back to his home. This privileged position required some responsibility. They needed to have lamps or torches, and they needed to have sufficient oil for these lamps to burn for quite a while. So we see in verse 3 and following, for, what, for when the... I'm sorry, verse 2. Five of these virgins were foolish. Five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. So here's the division, right? Here's the difference between these two groups. We have wise and we have foolish. The foolish virgins took no extra oil with them, but the wise took extra oil. And we see that in this parable, the bridegroom took longer in coming than was expected. Right? They didn't have cell phones back then. There wasn't a, okay, text me when you're on your way. Nothing like that. He comes when he comes. Right? And so we're going we're gonna to wait. We have an estimated time. We're going to be ready. We're going to have our lamps lit. We're going to wait. When he comes, he comes. We'll, then we'll escort him. And so five of these bridesmaids are thinking, okay, no big deal. This probably won't take long, you know, 30 minutes. Got my lamp. We're good. We're good to go. But then these other virgins said, no, you know what? This might take a while. We might be here for a while. You know, maybe these, they're not Boy Scouts because they're girls, but maybe they were Girl Scouts. You know, be prepared. We need to be prepared. So I'm going to bring a jug of oil with me. I'm going to make sure I've got extra batteries for my flashlight. I'm going to make sure we pack some snacks. We might get hungry as we wait. We're going to be prepared. That's the difference here. These are prepared. And the others are not. So as all these young gals are waiting for the groom to come, it takes a long time, and it says they all fall asleep until the call came at midnight. At midnight, the call rings. Here comes the groom. Come out to meet him. So when these bridesmaids woke up, they adjusted their lamps, they trimmed their lamps, and the foolish virgins found that their flames were flickering due to insufficient oil. We've already burned up what's in the, what's in the lamp. We need more. So they turned to the wise virgins who have extra oil. But the wise virgins, they, they need what they have. They, they can't share. Right? 
One preacher said about this parable, this is not a parable about sharing, right? That's not the point of this parable. Should we share as Christians? Yes, but that's not the point of this parable. So forced, these foolish virgins, their lamps flickering out, are forced to run to Walmart at midnight to buy some oil for their lamps. And as they're gone, the bridegroom arrives. Verse 10, verse 10 is very key to understanding this parable. Those who were ready went in with him. Those who were ready. When the foolish virgins return, they find the door shut. They're denied entrance. Lord, Lord, let us in. He says, I don't know you. And Jesus concludes the parable with this warning. Verse 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This brings us back to chapter 24, verse 36 and verse 44. Right? Concerning the day and the hour, no one knows. You do not know the time. Verse 44, therefore you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So this is one of those parables that's quite easy to get carried away with in the details. I, re- I remember, this is one of the parables I remember going through as a, as a young Christian that made me want to understand how to interpret parables better. Because I just got stuck on, you know, what's the significance of the oil, Right? The oil. So one had oil, one didn't have oil. What's the spiritual significance of oil? We're so, we can get carried away on details in this um, parable. What do the lamps represent? What does the oil represent? Or we can get stuck on, well, the wise and the foolish both fell asleep. What does that represent? Well, don't get stuck on details in this parable. But again, look for the point, the plain point. Some were ready, others were not. Readiness is what Jesus is emphasizing here. The foolish virgins were were ill-prepared for a long wait. Well, what was the wisdom of the five? It was in preparing for a possible delay and bringing what was necessary to fulfill their role as bridesmaids. So there's a connection in this passage between watchfulness, preparation, and wisdom. So we go back to Jesus' disciples here. The disciples of Jesus also seem to think that the end of the age and the coming of the fullness of Christ's kingdom is just around the corner. They do not yet fully comprehend that Jesus will die, will rise from the dead, ascend to the right hand of the Father, remain there in triumph as His enemies are made a footstool through the spreading of the Gospel to all the nations before He returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. This is going to take longer than they think. So at the same time, Jesus wants to prepare His disciples and us for a long wait, long obedience, long endurance. Yet, He does not want that long wait to produce a spiritual drowsiness. 
or lethargy. Jesus wants His disciples to be both prepared for long endurance, yet watchful for His imminent return. Those things almost seem contradictory, right? Prepared for long wait, prepared for long obedience, but yet it could be at any moment. That, that is how we are to live in the last days. I'm sure you've heard of you know, groups of people who thought the end of the world was coming you know, in a week, on a certain date. They thought Christ was returning, and so you know, they sewed their bed sheets together into robes, and they went up on top of a mountain and stared up in the sky. That, that is not the watchfulness that Jesus is wanting. There's, there must be a preparation. And so some people who take that view, right, run up the credit card, buy that new house, buy that brand new car. You know, who cares? We won't have to pay it off. Jesus is coming back. No, that is not how he wants his people to live. Preparation for long endurance, yet watchfulness for Christ's imminent return. So, how do we live in the last days? This parable teaches us we live prepared to endure in faith and obedience to Jesus Christ until the end. Live prepared to endure until the end. When you know that something is going to take a long time, you come to it with a different mindset, don't you? With a mental preparation, right? When you know you have to go to the Secretary of State to get something done, you better, I mean, just block the whole day out. This is going to take a while. Sit down, bring a book. You're prepared to wait, right? When you know that you're doing a project that's going to take a long time, you prepare yourself to endure. This project isn't going to take 20 minutes. It might take several years. But if you come to something thinking this is going to be quick and easy, then you easily begin to become impatient or to grumble or to give up when it takes longer or is harder than what you anticipated. Let's apply that to the Christian life. What about the Christian life? What mindset do we come to in our Christian life? What about salvation? What mindset do we come to our salvation with? What is our mindset when we come to these things? Now, on the one hand, we rightly defend and proclaim the freeness of salvation by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by our own works, not by our own endeavors, but by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And this salvation includes a wonderful, precious doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. That God is keeping us by His grace fully and finally until the end. But this does not mean that enduring in faith and obedience to Jesus Christ is easy. Salvation is free by the grace of God, but that does not mean that it is easy. While on the one hand, the Bible offers us great, precious gospel truths, gospel promises, gospel consolations by faith in Christ, 
it simultaneously warns us of the difficulties of the Christian path. And the Bible makes no secret that not all who seem to confess and begin this road will all finish and prove true and genuine in the end. We find this strange dichotomy in the Bible, don't we? Right? It is, it is God who works in you, both to will and to do. So make every effort. Wait, okay, so is it God or is it, is it me? Is it God? No, it's God, so work. It's God who works in you, so work. And, it seems, and sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our mind around this dichotomy, but it is presented clearly in the Scriptures. Look at, um, turn over to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, verse 21. This is talking about Paul and Barnabas, their first missionary journey. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium, and to Antioch, all these cities where they had planted churches. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Okay, we want to encourage the souls of the disciples. So the theme of our conference will be we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Have you ever read that verse and said, how is that encouraging? Because again, Paul and Barnabas, they're not trying to water down their, their converts. They're not trying to water down these Christians. They're saying, be prepared for this. Come to your Christian life with this mindset. You are going to face tribulations. Everything on this road to the celestial city is going to be against you. Everything along this path is going to try to trap you, distract you, deceive you, lull you. Prepare for that. Right? What if, what if I said, hey, you know, tomorrow, meet me tomorrow at a certain location. We're going to go for a hike. We're going to go for a little hike. You're like, okay. Little hike, okay, that sounds okay. You can show up a little backpack with a sandwich in it, and maybe you're wearing your flip-flops and shorts, and where I tell you to, to meet me is at the bottom of Mount Everest. Like, well, I am not prepared for this. What are you talking about? Right? Is that helpful? Is it helpful for me to give you this mindset that it's going to be easy, it's going to be easy-peasy? No. If something is going to be difficult, you need your mind prepared for that. What kind of hike are we talking about? Are we, I mean, if we're hiking a mountain in Michigan, you may not need all those things. But if we're hiking a mountain somewhere else, well, that's actually a mountain. You're going to need the right shoes. You're going to need the right clothing. You're going to need the right equipment. How long is this going to take? You need to know these things. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples and preparing us. This is not a picnic you're on here. Be prepared to wait 
Be prepared to endure. Be prepared to pass through many trials, many tribulations. But remember where you're going to the kingdom. Remember what you're waiting for. Christ, to enter in to the joyous marriage supper of the Lamb. The shallow gospel of easy believism does not prepare people for the life of true faith in Jesus Christ. True faith is an enduring faith. It is a faith that has grit. I'm not being moved from this. It's a faith that has counted the cost. It sees the cost of forsaking everything. It sees the cost of bowing in obedience to Christ and to His Word and to His commandments and says, yes, I will. It's so instructive to look back, I think, at at the past and see how saints of another era viewed the Christian life in this regard. And I think one very helpful resource is that classic book, Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan, the unlicensed Baptist preacher, allegorized the Christian life as a pilgrimage full of dangers, toils, and snares. Passing through sloughs of despond, hills of difficulty, dungeons of despair, enchanted ground, vanity fair, All of these things we have to go through as as believers. All of these things. I remember hearing one modern preacher who advocates easy believism saying he thought Pilgrim's Progress was unbiblical because it portrayed the Christian life as so difficult. Look how far we've come. I know... uh, Daniel Hawthorne rewrote a bit of Pilgrim's Progress and called it the Celestial Railroad. That's, that one is quite instructive. He, he pictures the same path of Pilgrim's Progress, but now there's a, there's a train that runs from the city of destruction to the celestial city. Just hop on the train. And it's, you know, the train has modern conveniences and food, and you just zoom right on by. I think that's how we think the Christian life is today. But it's not. It's a pilgrimage. It's a a journey of danger. A journey that requires endurance, preparation, watchfulness. Alright, we must move on. So live prepared to endure in faith and obedience to Jesus Christ until the end. Secondly, this parable points us to live watchful in anticipation of Christ's return. Watchful. He ends the parable with that. Watch, therefore. Watch. Stay awake. What is spiritual watchfulness? Well, again, it is not. Spiritual watchfulness is not, okay, so I need to be looking up in the sky when Jesus comes. So keep your eyes open. Don't go to sleep. No, that's not the watchfulness Jesus is talking about. Spiritual watchfulness is an attentive guarding of our hearts and lives in anticipation of Christ's imminent return. An attentive guarding of our hearts and our lives 
anticipating, always thinking, knowing that Christ can return at any time. We see our need for this watchfulness in the parable that we're, we've gone through this morning in the parable of the ten virgins. You see, the wise and the foolish both fell asleep. Right? So watchfulness, again, watchfulness doesn't mean they, stood, they stayed awake because they both fell asleep. So we see that even the regenerate elect of the Lord, we still live in this body that is beset by indwelling sin. We still live in this body that is frail and weak. We are prone to be spiritually dull. We're like a person who's rowing their boat upstream. If we stop rowing just for a moment, we begin to drift backwards. To think that we can live a life of enduring, growing, and fruitful Christian faith without watchfulness, without Christian disciplines. That's like thinking that you can live a long and healthy life without a good diet or regular exercise. It's foolish to think that we can live a life of growing faith, fruitful faith, without any effort. It's foolish. Grace dependent Faith-motivated action is not a contradiction to salvation by free grace. We have to understand that. Let me say it again. Grace-dependent, faith-motivated action is not a contradiction to salvation by free grace. It is the fruit of saving faith. The fruit of it. So, quickly, what, what must we watch against? What must we watch against? Well, first, we must watch against false teaching. Three times in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus warns His disciples to be on guard against false teachers. Verses 4-5, through verse 11, verse 23-27 through of Matthew chapter 24. All of these bring up false teachers, deceivers. You see, the teaching that we hear and accept as true will have an effect on us for good or for bad. The teaching that we regularly hear, regularly sit under, it has an effect upon us. Bad and shallow doctrine cannot produce or help a godly life, but will lull us to spiritual sleep and make us comfortable in our sin. But biblically sound, robust, experiential preaching has an awakening and helpful effect on the Christian. One of the best ways to maintain a watchfulness is to be under regular biblical preaching. We also need to watch against sin and temptation. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. Right when he tells the disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. We need to watch against the temptations of sin that would slide into our heart. Not just obvious, overt sins, but those subtle temptations that come. Watch against sin and temptation. Next, watch against distractions and drifting. Or at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
2 Corinthians 11. Paul says to the Corinthians, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The, the Christian is con- to continue, I'm sorry, wrong thing. A Christian is to have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He is, Christ is to be the object of our faith, our worship, our study, our hope, and our happiness. But it is so easy to drift from this sincere and pure devotion to Christ and to let other objects creep in. Right? Not, not, it's not Christ who is the, the object of my happiness, but my present circumstances. It is not Christ who becomes the object of my significance and my hope and my security, but this thing or that thing. It could be so many different things. Anything that takes that place of Christ, anything that becomes the source of our significance, our security, our hope, our happiness, has usurped the place of Christ in our hearts. We have to watch our hearts. As Proverbs says, guard your heart with all diligence. Let's get a little more practical. How do we watch? How do we watch? What does that mean? Have you find yourself asking that as you read Jesus continually saying, stay awake, watch, watch. Okay, how do I do that? Do I drink Mountain Dew? How do we watch? Well, first, by being well-grounded in scriptural doctrine. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. There Paul commands and encourages these Colossians to be well-grounded. Let me find that Scripture really quick. Colossians 1.23 If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Continuing in the faith requires being stable and steadfast in the truth of the Gospel. Knowing what it is. What is the Gospel? What is sound doctrine? Thomas Watson concludes from this passage, Colossians 1.23, it is the duty of Christians to be settled in the doctrine of faith. Be settled in truth. How can you watch against false teachers and their teaching if you're not well acquainted with sound biblical teaching? This is the importance of doctrine. The importance of Scripture. Knowing the Scriptures. Knowing biblical doctrine. We need to be regularly in the Scriptures and digesting helpful teaching tools like the 1689 Confession, other good catechisms. I have come to understand the, the helpfulness of those resources. Right? Like the Westminster Catechism or the Heidelberg Catechism. These things that take, summarize biblical teaching in very concise, easy to remember things. It's so helpful. I found it so helpful. 
We must be watchful by being well grounded in the Scriptures, knowing what is faith. How are we saved by Jesus Christ? Who is Christ? What has He done for us? We need to know these things. Again, as as we've made this point before, a genuine Christian faith and life prepared, ready, and watching for the coming of Christ is cultivated in the soil of sound biblical doctrine. That is the soil where this Christian life and faith grows. Biblical doctrine. Secondly, how do we watch? We watch through prayer. It is amazing how often watch and pray are joined together in Scripture. Watch and pray. Even Jesus uses it synonymously. When He comes to His disciples, they they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, He says, watch with Me. He doesn't mean just stay awake. He meant pray with Me. Intercede with Me. Prayer is often a tool of watchfulness, and it is a gauge of watchfulness. It is a gauge of our watchfulness. I I wrote that sentence, and that convicts me. We cannot be watchful without prayer. We cannot be said to be watchful over our hearts and our lives if we are prayerless. Our prayers should include self-examination. Examining ourselves. What heart? What is going on with you? Where is your focus? Where is your watch? Are you prepared? Right? In your mind as you're praying, fast forward yourself to that day of judgment. You're standing before the judgment seat of Christ. How's it going to go with you, soul? What is going to happen? How will you stand? How does, it, how does it stand with you, soul? Are you clinging to Christ, trusting in Him? Is He your hope in life and death? Do you know that He has made propitiation for all your sins? Do you know He has rescued you from Satan and all of His schemes? Do you know that He so rules your life that not one hair of your head will perish apart from His will? Do you know those things? You have to talk. Prayer is not just to God. Sometimes it's talking to yourself. Where are you? Wake up. How is it going? How is this journey? Are you still clinging to Christ? Are you still watching against sin? Are you still loving the brethren? All of these things. All of these fruits of faith. All of this is part of watchfulness. And then lastly, how do, how do we watch Well, let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 24. Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, the day of Christ's return drawing near. 
this one I think was helpful and a little surprising for me that you know we usually think of watchfulness as a personal thing right stay awake you individually stay awake watch pray but it's also a corporate thing God has given us something because he knows how drowsy we are he knows how spiritually dull we can become he has given us a built-in help to stay watchful, to stir one another up, to elbow each other if we get dull. And that is the fellowship of the church. The fellowship of the church. How do we watch? We watch by being committed to the corporate fellowship of a local church. God has not only given us personal means of watchfulness, but He has designed a whole community to help keep watch over our souls, the church. Submission to the oversight of qualified elders. Right? Elders who themselves, God has commanded, watch over this flock. Watch over these people. Regular fellowship of like-minded saints, as we see in this verse, is a great help in spiritual preparation. Right? He says, let us consider how to stir one another up. Right, wake each other up. Encourage one another along this journey. All of this is how we watch. Being grounded in scriptural doctrine. Prayer, constant in prayer. Committed to the corporate fellowship of a local church. And then finally as we close, we look, I don't want to, miss this last part of the parable. What is the reward of watchfulness? Those who were ready went in with the bridegroom to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Why? Why? Why all this to-do about watchfulness? Why all this hubbub about being prepared? What's the big deal? What is the big deal about it? The big deal about it is that those who were prepared and watchful went in to this feast. Went into the marriage. Those who were foolish and unprepared and thought, you know what, this Christian thing is not a big deal. Easy peasy. I prayed a prayer. I'm good to go. Back to my life. Did not enter. They didn't. I can't change the parable. That's what Jesus said would happen. They went up to the door and knocked and said, hey, I got my oil now. They said, too late. Look at how this language reflects what Jesus has said previously in the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, Lord, open to us. Suddenly the bridegroom is now Lord, Lord. And he says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. This is, there's nothing more serious. This is eternal life and eternal death. That is why we watch. You watch things carefully that you care about. You watch the progression of your 401k because you care about it. You watch the safety of your children at the playground because you care about them. We watch what we care about. We prepare for things we care about. 
Do you care about your soul? Do you care about where you will spend eternity? And watch. Prepare. Cling to the Lord and pray. Strive against sin. Endure trials. Cling to Christ. And do all that is necessary to keep doing it day after day after day after day until He comes. And thankfully, as we come to this supper, we see Christ has supplied what we need. He has. He supplies grace upon grace upon grace through His own blood, through His own body. Dependent responsibility is what Jerry Bridges liked to coin it. Dependent responsibility. We are dependent on Christ and on His grace. But we are responsible to watch, to prepare, to do by that grace. Let's pray. God, we come, Lord, with the, Your words ringing in our ears. Those who were ready came in. Watch, therefore, for You know not the day or the hour. Help us, O God. Lord, we are dull, spiritually dull. We are so ready to be carried off with the world and carried off with the lies of sin. We are so ready to be blinded. We want our ease and our rest Oh God, help us. Help us. Wake us up, Lord, that we might prepare, that we might use the means of grace that You have given to us to be ready upon that day to cling to Christ, to feed upon Him until He comes to bring us to our eternal rest and our eternal reward. We'll never perish, spoil, or fade. Help us, O God. In Jesus' name, amen.